Good afternoon, Ethel. Hello there, James. <laughs> it's nice yeah. to speak to you. So, um, you're the first in what hopefully is going to be um, a new series and a new venture for me, um, apart right. from in my, uh, my music programmes. Um, I'm looking to do stuff more along the art line, um, so chatting to authors, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, right. And obviously, I'm starting with yourself because I've read the first two of your books. I'm on book three at the moment. And I must say that Changed Times, very good title because it's actually changed me a wee bit having read that book. Oh, my. <laughs> um, and the reason I'm saying that is obviously Scots is my native language, but I had never actually read anything, you know, that was written in Scots until your book and it took me a, maybe a couple of days to get my head around words that I understood but hadn't really seen them written down. Um, and uh, it, it's really made me look into that whole aspect of the language um, a wee bit more. So it's, it's changed me a wee bit. <laughs> well, that, in a way, is a good thing. Uh, you know, words that you've been uh, familiar with but you haven't seen them written down, and you look at them and you think, oh, and then you realise that's what it is. The next time round, it's easier. Yeah, but it does absolutely. take a wee while. And so that kind of leads me into, before you started to write the books, were they always going to be in Scots or did it just happen to be because of the subject matter of the books that it was going to be better written that way? Well, I would say that it's a bit of both because when I was writing before I started the series, I found that things came more easily when I did it in Scots. Mm -hmm. And because, obviously, it was a Scots theme, um, it seemed a, a great opportunity to, well, practically indulge myself in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've enjoyed it, and I feel now that when I'm writing, um, a lot of the times I think it in Scots, and then perhaps um, with the description, I then put it into English. So in a way, it's changed me as well. <laughs> That's good to know. That's good to it's know. It's had an effect on both of us. <laughs> I was speaking to somebody recently, and I was kind of trying to count up roughly the number of languages that would have been used historically in Scotland. Obviously, Scots, Gaelic, um, Doric. Yes. Um and I'm trying to, I, I got that far, but then I couldn't really think of anything else after that. But I'm sure there must be something else. Well, the, the, the vast number of the people spoke what, what was broadly known as Lowland Scots. Mm -hmm. And that has gone on into today. And you've got various um, variations of it, depending on where you live. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, um, the Glasgow way of speaking is slightly different to Dumfries or the Borders. Um, and also they bring in new words. But generally, it's the same. It's a, 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 The form of it is the same, but the use of the words is slightly different. And also the accent. Um, the accent is very important because um, when you say a word a certain way, it sounds totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting you were saying there about, you know, the sort of differences in Lowland Scots. I'm from Glasgow. And uh, I lived away from Glasgow for a lot of years. Um, but I did find when I came back, my cousin's kids, who were like by this time maybe in their teens, were talking kind of the same language as me, but it was slightly different because mm -hmm. they had obviously kind of, you know, their generation had brought in new words that I didn't quite yes. understand, you know. And I think the same feeling when I started to read change times I had that same kind of feeling I felt that I should know exactly what it was but it was just kind of out of my you know out of my reach yes and yeah, but you got there you got there I did yeah I did um and do you know what it, it's interesting because I know a lot of people who would have started to read something like that and they would have given up maybe after the first couple of pages yes that's what makes what I'm writing a bit of a niche market and I'm well aware of that. Mm -hmm. It's got to be. Although having said that, one of uh, my readers um, is actually Welsh, and English was her, her second language. Mm -hmm. And she now lives in the south of England. And she's been learning Scots since then. 
<laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, when she will email me, um, you know, she'll, she'll slip in a Scots word just to prove to me that she is, in fact, doing it. So it, it's quite strange. Um, when the a fourth book was, was launched, um, it was done on Zoom. And the benefit of that was people came in from all over the place mm-hmm. you know, rather than in a bookshop or in a library. Mm-hmm. So there was people came in from all over Britain. Um, whom I had no idea. Yeah. Enthusiastic uh, about it being in Scots, which was nice. Yeah. I mean, obviously I didn't get taught much Scottish history when I when I went to school. Um Nobody it, did. It, it wasn't really the done thing. And oh, a lot okay. of Scottish history I've learned, you know, out with of that environment. Yeah. Um, but I really learned quite a lot through these first couple of books as well. Um, about that whole Covenanter period in which, you know, I didn't know anything about at all really until I started to read the books. It is indeed um, a very peculiar time. Um, and it's, a, it's actually a time where I would say if you divide them into two sides, the for and against, mm. uh, we see that the for are the uh, royalists or yeah. the king, etc., and the against. Neither of them at the end of the day really come out of it I would say, really cleanly. Mm-hmm. They don't. Um, and that's really what interested me because uh, I felt that I wanted to tell a story with a kind of even-handed way of looking at it. And it was only when I found the character um, who is John Steele and who actually is, was, a real person. And I followed, um, you know, what he'd gotten up to and I realised that he was such an unusual man for his time because um, he actually was looking at it with disparate eyes as well. Mm-hmm. Although his nature allowed him, or unfortunately, he was sucked into something. Yeah. But it's really a story about being sucked into something and then it takes over and then you have to live with the consequences. Mm. That's interesting, actually, you said that about John Steele, because that was going to be one of my questions. You know, was he a real person or was he kind of a composite of people that you'd kind of heard about? So he was definitely a real person. That's good. He was actually a real person. And I could maybe add that he's got quite a lot of descendants. Yeah, yeah, because Steele is uh, one of those names, I think, in and around Lanarkshire, isn't it? Yes, very much so. But strangely enough... um, a good number of them have been in touch, you know, not, not local ones who, mm. who knew me anyway. Um, but I've had um, a steal from San Francisco uh, <laughs> was in touch. As it was Vicky Steele Rudolph was her name. Right. And I thought, well, I wonder really, um, is she on her own or what? And then the next time she contacted me, she said, I'm going to send you a picture. We're, we're just about to have a meeting of the Steele descendants and we'll send you a picture. And then came this picture. It was kind of on a bridge. And there was about 100 of them all standing there waving. I couldn't believe it. Plus, the main one who's been in touch is a fellow called Anthony Steele. Mm-hmm. And he is also a farmer. Um, and he lives down in a locker bay. Right. And there's quite a nucleus of them down there. Mm-hmm. And they've been very supportive. In fact, when I went to the Wigtown um, Book Festival, God damn it, they turned up there, they were in the front row. Uh, I didn't know who they were at the time, but somehow I kept going back to them and saying, why are they staring at me like that? (laughs) And I'm very glad to see they've been supportive. So what I've said hasn't got their dander up, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because obviously the the, the real, if you like, historical figures are like, uh, John Graham of Claverhouse, um, George McKenzie, so on and so forth. I mean, they are names that, to a certain extent, I think a lot of people would maybe recognise um, yes. from various, you know, sources, but not know anything about. I mean, it's I, I'm not sure if I'm right with this, but um, he's described as the Viscount of Dundee. Is is that then different from Bonnie Dundee? Same person. Is it the same? I, it's the know, same I person. Thought that. He became a Viscount Dundee towards the end of his career. Ah, right. And he was given that by King James. But yes, same person. Ah, The interesting thing about John Graham is he gets very bad press. Mm -hmm. Um, In covenanting circles, 
is often referred to as bloody clavers. Yeah. Now, I've got to confess at this point, but all along, I've had a wee soft spot for him. <laughs> because um, he is and was a mercenary. Yeah. He was doing a job. He had nothing actually against the Covenanters, not that they would believe that. Mm-hmm. Because if you look into his personal life, the woman he married, Jean Cochran, came from a rabid covenanting family. Right. But he loved her mm-hmm. and she him and they married. And her family cut her off without the Yeah, yeah. They all stayed together. So you see, he didn't have anything against the Covenanters per se, mm. but his boss, who at that time was the Duke of York, had said that you need to um, root out those rebels mm-hmm. by whatever means. And he obeyed orders. So I've got a wee soft spot for him. Yeah. Um, but for many reasons, but it's not a popular thing to see. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting, um, you know, when John Steele uh, is up uh, in front of the sheriff in Lanark um, for the first offence, as it were, um, and Claverhouse is there, and, you know, they're, they're fining him, and then he goes to, you know, get the, the goods to pay the fine, and he, he wants to take the the horse Juno, um, but John is a wee bit smarter and, you know, secretes the horse elsewhere. And from my reading of the, you know, the story, I can imagine Claverhouse laughing at that. Yes, you know, that he's exactly. Being duped, do you know what I mean? Yes. Which kind of would go against the how you're seeing him, you know, as the person who's coming down hard on these people, you know? Absolutely. Um, he's able to see both sides, although when he comes down, he comes down hard. Yeah. And he also has a hell of a temper. Well, I mean, I think he was kind of well named, wasn't he, with with a kind of bloody tag, um, you know, because of his... I, I don't necessarily think it was to do with the fact that he let a lot of blood. I think it was to do with the fact that he was quite tenacious. Well, he was definitely tenacious. And also, um, he had to um, really stand up for himself because he wasn't one of the what you would call the great lords. Mm-hmm. Um, his father um, was a laird. And he was a second son, and second sons don't inherit. Yeah. So because of that, he decided on a military career, and he went off, um, as many Scots boys did, um, to Holland. Mm-hmm. And for a time, believe it or not, he was actually in the regiment of the Prince of Orange. Mm-hmm. So you see, it turns itself upside down by the time you're finished. He and the Prince of Orange fell out. But the reason they fell out was that, first of all, at a siege, the Prince of Orange was in danger of being captured. Mm-hmm. And a Claverhouse um, galloped down, lifted him up, saved him and brought him back. So you can imagine the Prince of Orange was pretty grateful. Absolutely. At that point, he said to him, I'll make you a colonel in my regiment. Now, at that time, um, John Graham was just a young man. So he was thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to be a colonel, you know, and this is really super. Mm -hmm. But the Prince of Orange was very good at changing his mind. (laughs) And later on, he thought to himself, that man's a wee bit young for that. Um, I think maybe it should go to this man called Mackay, who at that time was in his 40s. And this is what he did. And John Graham was spitting peas about this. He was not amused. And he was doubly not amused when the Prince of Orange sent him a bag of gold as compensation. And he took a temper tantrum and opened the bag and threw all the gold up and down all over the stable yard and then got on his horse and galloped away and left um, his regiment. And when he crossed over to England, he then presented himself to Charles II and said, are you looking for a military man? (laughs) (laughs) so you see he did have a temper (laughs) yeah um and it's not really something that somebody would have done in those days glibly you know is is throw money away um no one did you know um so what i wanted to find out from you as well because obviously with a book like this there's a great deal of research has to go into it 
Um, and obviously, you know, you, you've listed the historical characters and you've given, you know, um, like in the case of John Graham of Claverhouse, 1648 to 1689. Um, but there's a couple of them where uh, you don't have like maybe a date of birth or a David Haxton of Rathillet timeline not verified. No, it wasn't. Um, so is that because possibly records may be destroyed? Because I know obviously at that time the records would have been kept probably in a parish church or something like that. Yes, but it's partly that, or, or, or they've disappeared. But mm. in actual fact, the main character, John Steele, we don't know when John was born. Mm. We also don't know when he died. Right. But we know quite a bit about the in-between, which is really what actually matters. Yeah. But the interesting thing about him is he's actually buried um, in Les Mahigo Old Parish Church Kirkyard. Right. And we know he's there, but we don't know which gravestone is his. And the reason for that is that in those days, if you were a devout Christian, you would ask to be buried under what was known as a plain fruch stone, and that was a stone with no name and no date. Oh, right. So um, I know where it's buried, kind of, mm. but I don't know exactly. But the main thing is nobody knows when he actually did die. We know he died um, of natural causes. Right. So he lived to tell the tale at the end. Mm -hmm. So going back to the kind of beginning of the book um, and to uh, the minister, uh, Lucas. Well, he's uh, a difficult one. <laughs> I, I must admit, <coughs> I really had sympathy for him. Um, even before, you know, when he gets turned out, you know, and then obviously his wife dies um, because of the crash with the the horse and cart. Um, but the fact that he was a man who, in my opinion, uh, and I hope I've read it right, was trying to do the right thing, you know, as he saw it, but yes. ended up again on the wrong side of the law, probably for the wrong reasons. And also, when that happened to him, he couldn't cope. Yeah. And that was a weakness of the character. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, a, he's a difficult one. Um, he has high aspirations. He's very much a theory man. Yeah. But when he meets the practicalities, um, it's kind of a different story, uh, as you find out as the thing unravels you know, through the series. Yeah, I must admit, um, as I say, I'm on to the third book and I don't really want to go into the third book uh, here, but as you said there, I can see how the progression has gone, you know, from book, book one, book two, and now uh, book three, you know. Um, but as I say, I don't really want to talk about book three because I've just really started on it. Um, but in terms of uh, writing the book, I mean, did it take a long time? To do, and by a long time, I'm talking about you know the time for your research and all the rest of it to the actual yes. writing of the novel. I suppose, um, in the grand scheme of things, it took a very long time mm. because I had to, I really had to do a lot of digging, mm. um, and, and become comfortable with what I was actually putting down on paper so that I could defend it. Yeah, and, and in all, I think it'll have taken me up to 10 years, including all the research, to get started. Yeah. But once I got started, it kind of just unravels. Mm -hmm. At the moment, I'm wrestling with the first few chapters of book six. Mm -hmm. Book five is with my publisher. Now, I've got no problem there because I know where I'm going, yeah. but that's only because, well, the tip of the iceberg was what went before. Mm -hmm. and if I hadn't done that, I would be having to stop and go and do the research, but I don't need to do that now. Yeah, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I dabble uh, with writing. Um, I've always written essays and short stories, and really enjoyed doing stuff like that. And I'm, I'm struggling at the moment with uh, my own book, um, slightly different um, from yours. It's, it's in relation to uh, football, and it's getting the information about the. It, it's really about three footballers played for a, a specific club um, and it's getting the information about them so it's knowing where to point your nose exactly and, and when you get a lead not hanging back following oh. it up very quickly and when you get a hold of somebody who you're quite sure has got a wee nugget that you want 
you really need to nourish them. And when you do that, I really have found along the way that people could not have been more helpful, but you need to find them first. Yeah. And that in itself takes time. Absolutely. <laughs> so I must admit, and, and kind of going back to, to the beginning of the book as well, you had a, a poem right at the very start of the book, uh, The Giver by uh, Finola Scott, uh, yes. who I didn't know at all until I read, you know, that poem from the book, and I've gone on to find out a wee bit more about her. So well, again, as a, a character and a half. <laughs> Great. You know, again, it's taken me down routes that, you know, I may never have gone down um, if I hadn't actually started to read the book. And I was really interested in the quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that you'd uh, included in as well. I've heard that quote quite a few times, and I must admit, I would never have thought until I seen it in your book and then read the book, the relevance. Right. Well, that's good. <laughs> you know, so it's just, I, I, it's, I, I love language. Do you know what I mean? All types of language, I absolutely love it. And it's amazing how things that can be, seem to be so far apart can actually really. be a common thread. Yes. And I find that, you know, as I said, with your book, um, Changed Times, as I said, changed me um, because it made me think long and hard about a lot of things, but also made me want to learn more. And once I'd finished the first book, it wasn't even like it got put down and there was a space and then I picked up, you know, book two. It was almost as soon as I'd finished reading book one, book two got pulled out and you know I started on that and the same has happened with book three because I'm just so keen to to know what's going to happen next <laughs> well that pleases me very much <laughs> thank you it's it's a part people people don't know anything about when I go out to um you know like various speaking events mm -hmm. um usually in libraries the very first one that I went to I thought it was going to be the sort of usual, you know, author comes and meets the people yeah. and reads a bit of the book and answers questions. Mm -hmm. And the minute I started, I could see by their faces, they had no idea what I was on about. So I thought, right, stop. So I stopped and actually said to them, look, do you know anything about this? And they're looking back at me like owls, you know, as if to say, what is this woman talking about? And I said, well, do you know anything about 17th century in Scotland? No. Um, but would like to know. Yeah, so from yeah. then on, what I do is I go out and I give them a PowerPoint mm. history lesson, but I try to make it kind of light and fun. Mm. And you have no idea the number of people afterwards who come and say to me, I'm going to find out a bit more. Yeah. I didn't get that at school. I don't know anything about it. So I feel that by doing that, although in a kind of diverse way, it's possibly helping to promote my book, it's more important than it's telling people about their own background, exactly. which when they discover it's there, they think, well, maybe I should know about it. And so they should. Well, that's exactly my thoughts. You know, um, as I said, didn't get taught anything like that in school. Um, it was all about the Tudor kings and queens and all the rest of it. The only Scottish history um, that I can recall being taught was Robert Bruce falling mm -hmm. on with a spider because he's seen it you know, completing a spider's web and that gave him the inspiration to to go on again. And that, that was about it, you know. And everything that I do know about Scots history is stuff that I've learned ever since I left school. But the 17th century until uh, your books came along were a period that I didn't really know anything about, but I'm now learning a lot more about it. And I think it's great that people are starting to feel that way. And, you know, I hope that, you know, it's something that becomes more common for people to, to be taught it going forward. Well, I hope so. Um, every little helps. We Absolutely. just keep pegging away. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm going to finish book six and bring the whole thing, you know, to a finale. Mm -hmm. And that's my aim. When I started off, it was only going to be one book. Yeah. Um, and when I uh, got a publisher um, and spoke to them, I said, now, um, do you want one fat book? Mm -hmm. Or do you want it in stages? Mm -hmm. And immediately they said in stages that you need to drip feed this. Yeah. It was going to be too much. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So in a way, they were being kind to me because it's given me more space as well. Yeah. So uh, book two then in this series, and obviously continuation uh, on from book one, but one thing I wanted to ask you that kind of struck me a little bit, I'm sure you must have in your mind's eye a picture of how each character must look. And I was just wondering if it kind of corresponded with how I envisaged them. Right. I see I see John Steele as being a, a rather big and robust, hearty sort of man. Um, obviously a farmer, so, you know, does a lot of physical labour, so very, very strong. Lucas Brotherston, I see, uh, again, as a kind of tall man, but much slighter of frame and much more studious type person. Would that kind of correspond with yourself? Well, as far as um, John Steele is concerned, um, I didn't need to imagine, um, you know, about him because he was described. Right. And he was he was large, very well built, and rather athletic. Mm-hmm. He also had brown curly hair, right. and uh, brown eyes, and he had a kind of I would say friendly, happy face. Mm-hmm. But he was one of those people that it was not wise. Across, yeah, <laughs> does that make sense? No, I completely get that. <laughs> now, Lucas uh, Brotherstone, um, you're kind, you're more or less there. I didn't imagine him um, as being um, particularly tall, I was more inclined to the sort of um, academic, studious, mm. um, preferring the word, the world of uh, words and theory, um, and being a bit lost in the real world. But a nice enough fellow, Mm -hmm. but not with the backbone that really a man of conviction would have. Yeah, and I think that comes across really well, um, you know, in the in the books, um, the way that you you know you write about them, um, because once I really started to get into the characterizations, um, each character really started to come alive to me. Um, and I know that, you know, as a reader, you know, you do, or I certainly do, form pictures while I'm reading of, you know, what the scene is like, what the people involved in that particular scene are like. And I'm always curious, you know, as to how that might correspond with how other people see, you know, what they see when in their mind's eye when they're reading or indeed writing. Yep. I think that's very important um, in anybody's writing is... Um, to try and connect your thoughts with somebody else. Mm. And what, you're, what I'm trying to do is not to say that um, I want you to think this way yeah. and that's how I see the person. I want them to um, travel with them and along the way just simply make up their own mind mm-hmm. because the theme of the whole book is pretty sensitive. You know, there's a lot of people um, have very strong opinions one way or the other. And I've certainly found that out um, when I've gone to speaking events. Yeah. And you can sense it very quickly. Um, whether you're with an audience that's um, with the Covenanters, in inverted commas, mm-hmm. or a group that are almost um, I write, so it is. <laughs> and you can feel that immediately. And I always start off by saying, look, Please remember that whatever I'm telling you, I'm just somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Because I really don't want to be rushed by the audience and swept (laughs) off my seat. (laughs) It usually gets a wee laugh. Yeah, I must admit that I'm leaning more to the Covenanters, um, not from any religious standpoint or anything like that, but purely and simply because I do tend to kind of side with the underdog. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as a general rule, um, I, I suppose there's maybe a bit of a rebel in me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but by the same token, uh, some some of the, the sort of central characters on the royalist side, I do find quite an affinity with as well. Um, so it's not quite conflicting, but on the one hand, it's like, you know, I'm not too sure how this is going to go here, you know? Right. I, I, to be quite honest, I think if you look at it um, desperately, that either side does not emerge clean. No. They don't. They don't at all. Now, the interesting thing is that today when we're speaking is the 28th of February. 
Mm-hmm. And James says, so what about that? Exactly. Today, today is the day that the National Covenant was signed in oh. Greyfriars Kirkyard in 1638, which is a long time before I'm writing about John Steele. So right. that gives you an idea as to how long the argument that became physical mm-hmm. went on. Because yeah. it wasn't actually resolved until 1689. Yeah. And, you know, again, that kind of highlights, as we spoke previously, about, you know, the lack of education on Aye. our own history. Because I had absolutely no idea about that. Today is the first I've ever heard that fact. Mm-hmm. And um, 60,000 people turned up for it, mm. which is quite a crowd. It's every bit as good as a football match. <laughs> I mean, if you take it in context of, you know, the period as well, it wouldn't have been that easy for 60,000 people to get there. No, that's the you important know. thing. Um, you need to have conviction. Yeah. To do it. It's not a, a something you would do on a whim. And in actual fact, um, a good number of the people were so incensed about it that they actually um, cut their skin um, mm-hmm. to get blood. And they literally signed it with blood. blood. Oh, my goodness. You know, which is a, a wee bit kind of intake of breath on my part. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, it's kind of funny because I was having a conversation yesterday evening with someone and it was kind of to do with, you know, believing in things or not mm-hmm. believing in things. And... My standpoint tends to be that unless I can see proof of something, yes. I tend not to believe that it's possible, but I don't discount it, mm-hmm. you know? But as soon as I can see proof of something, then I'm more inclined to go along the lines of, yeah, that's definitely something that's happened. So in a historical context, if there's some sort of historical record written or oral record that has been handed down over the years and I can get to see it, it makes it much more real for me. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Yeah. Um, and that's why um, in the writing, what I've tried to do is to portray the many doubts along the way. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of doubts. Oh, yes, definitely. And, and that, that, I think, is a, is a good thing for people to read mm-hmm. um, because then they realise that there were neither saints nor sinners. Um, some of them were, were definitely um, so focused that they had no doubt. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, um, people like that frighten the shit out of me. <laughs> no, you know I completely what? understand what you mean that by that, actually. <laughs> Because I think, how did you get there? Yeah. You know, how did you get there? And are you going to be staying there? Mm -hmm. And please don't influence me too much. You know, and I I step back. And I've met a few, there are still a few of them going about today, trust me. (laughs) I can believe that. I, I can actually believe that. Because people do tend to, you know, certain people tend to become very fixed, don't they, in in a belief or a belief system. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you show them evidence that may contradict what they believe, they are never, ever going to change their minds. That's right. I I had a similar experience um, just last week um, where on a particular uh, site, it's to do with um, the lost houses of the Clyde Valley. Mm -hmm. A particular person um, put up um, a piece about this fellow who was shot it was supposed to be a covenanter, but there's no proof that it was. Yeah. He went on to um, mention John Graham of Claverhouse and literally went on a rant about John Graham. And I thought, no, you're not getting away with that. Mm-hmm. So very politely, I think, on my part, I pointed out a, that I had a soft spot for John Graham mm-hmm. and then laid out the fact that he'd been a mercenary and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Well, I'd made a big mistake there because I had confessed that I had a soft spot for him. And the spat grew quite ferocious until it got to the point where there was no way that I was ever going to convince him. I mean, he was describing him as a bandit Mm -hmm. and a rat bag and so on and so forth. Um, And I was trying to say, look, he wasn't. 
that was the way they were then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually um, I said to him, uh, look, we're not going to agree, so let's just agree to disagree. Exactly. And to my relief, I got quite a lot of likes, but he never, ever responded after that. Right. And it was a lesson to me, just watch what you say. Don't confess that you've got a soft spot for anything. (laughs) Well, I have to admit, I've experienced similar things. Um, But... Uh, in the past through social media things as well. Um, so I tend to be quite guarded, um, yes. you know, when I'm on social media these days um, because it's very easy for people to jump all over the top of you and start accusing you of all sorts and they miss completely, the, you know, the point. Uh, of, of what it's it's the fact that they do it so quickly. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're kind of taken aback. You think, that's not what I meant. But you, it's said, and you can't really stop them from saying it. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, I might be wrong about that, this person that you're referring to, but I sometimes think that the people that jump on like that, it's through a lack of knowledge, you know, really of what it is that they're trying to discuss. Um, they've not yes. really done a great deal of research into it. I mean, obviously... Well, he a, yes, he had a broad picture. Yeah, but yeah. When I pointed out some of the facts he was claiming were wrong and why they were wrong, um, he, he didn't respond to that. He just kept on saying that that's what the man was like and that nothing would change yeah. his mind. And mm. I thought, this is going nowhere. But I've, I've come across this a lot, um, even at speaking events, mm. um, because, you know, people would come up, not necessarily during the, the event, they would come mm. up to me afterwards and say, I didn't like you siding with him. And I said, look, I'm not siding with him. I was just trying to tell you he was a human being the same as we are. Mm-hmm. And they look at you and shake their head and, you know, they're no listening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think personally, after having read the first two books, I mean, I do, in my own opinion, I firmly believe that under different circumstances, John Steele and uh, Claverhouse could probably have been friendly. I would agree with you entirely. You know? Because um, um, Claverhouse had respect for John Steele. Yeah. Um, because funnily enough, um, I'm working on uh, book six at the moment. Yeah. Um, and obviously we're away down the line. And at this point, um, someone has um, seen um, John Steele and uh, is a, an intelligence or informer. Yeah. And he tells John Graham. Now, John Graham hasn't seen John Steele for something like seven years. Right. But he knows exactly who he is mm-hmm. and he remembers. And he says to his sergeant, Aye, he's a bit of a challenge. <laughs> and he was. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that actually because obviously I'm coming towards the end of book three at the moment and I'm finding myself starting to do a wee bit more research as All I was right. through the book. The first book I read the first book as a kind of standalone sort of idea. Um and then when I read book two, um obviously it's following on and I started to think a bit more about the characters and the situations. And then when I started to read book three, um, there were things that you were mentioning, and I won't mention them yet because we're going to talk about them in another uh, chat, but there were things that you were mentioning throughout book three that I thought, I need to find out a wee bit more about this. Um, So I found myself doing a wee bit extra research um, to, to see what's going on because, as I said before, the whole history of that period, I knew nothing about until I really started to read your books. Um, well, strangely was, enough, was, I didn't what, know. What? I was in the same boat until I started. Mm-hmm. Because I started, you know, by accident. I didn't go looking for them. Yeah. Um, it was, um, I think I've already said that um, many years ago, um, I was in a writing group. Mm-hmm. And we were asked by Visit Scotland to prepare pamphlets. And I eventually landed up, because of where I live, um, with what about you looking at the local covenanters? Mm-hmm. And I then went to um, the local um, archivist um, at Les Mahego, and what he told me was very, very interesting, yeah. but it didn't set my hair on fire mm-hmm. until he said, but there's another young. I said, mm-hmm. what do you mean there's another one? He says, oh, they didn't catch him. 
<laughs> that was me hooked. Yeah. Because I thought, I want to know about this. I said, what do you mean they didn't catch him? He said he was on the run for 10 years and he never was caught. And he lived to tell the tale. But he says, more important to my way of thinking is he still didn't want revenge at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's an unusual man, not just then. I'm afraid, but still today. No, absolutely. It's it's kind of one of the sort of cornerstones in some ways, you know, that need to to kind of get your own back if you've been a, <laughs> aggrieved at something. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you as well is obviously <clears throat> we have the historical characters that um, we can find out about, um, but there are obviously going to be other characters within the book that to a certain extent are much more fictitious and coming yes. from you. Um, did you find it easy to fit them into the narrative because of, you know, the facts and figures that you were managing to dig up or? Not difficult. No, not no. difficult. Because um, I knew that um, in the weaving of it, certain things should happen um, where I didn't have um, a record of a real person being involved. Mm -hmm. So my next thought was, well, what kind of person would have been involved in that right. and took the character from them? But, for instance, um, with the uh, now what character? The Tinker. Yeah. Gabby. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of that about. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of, of those kind of people were involved in different ways within it. Yeah. And what I did was I read quite a lot about people's um, telling of the, the stories about them. Mm -hmm. And then thought, right, this might work. And that was how Gabby um, appeared. Right. Because what he is, is a child that was abused. Yeah. And hated the world thereafter um, and lived that way. Yeah. And to be honest, the, the history, if you like, of Tinkers, I only kind of know about through uh, music. Um, and through sort of folk songs and stuff like that, you know, right. because obviously the problem, I don't, I might be wrong in saying this, but I don't really think there's going to be a huge amount of written historical record for these people, um, just purely because of the way that they lived their lives. So yeah. story and song is the way that, you know, people will have to learn about them. And I, I think, think in their own way, it. they're very interesting. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and they don't deserve to be forgotten. Yeah. Because in their own way, um, they can contributed to the thread of everything else. Mm -hmm. So when when you're writing, obviously book one, um, you've, you've done book one, you're moving on to book two. Did that become an easier book to write because of what had happened with book one? Or did it become a bit more difficult because you perhaps having to include, you know, more characters, more facts, more figures, all that kind of stuff? No, it became easier. Right. And it became easier because it had its own flow mm -hmm. and there was an obvious momentum of this terrible story was going somewhere. So I was keen enough to find out where it might be going. Yeah. And why? And that's been the case um, with all the other books. The only problem has been and is that this one that I'm on at the moment, which is book six, um, and is intended, I say intended because the last one was intended as well to be the last one, is trying to tie it up. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think uh, sometimes I'll sit and look at what I've written and, and think to myself, no. <laughs> just scrub it out. <laughs> so it kind of takes on a life of its own then in that respect. Yes, it's a family joke, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, my husband will say, uh, are we getting any dinner? Are you able to come out of the 17th century? <laughs> <laughs> or if I'm sitting and I'm very quiet for a wee while, I say, where in the name of God are you now? <laughs> And it's quite right because nine times out of ten, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. Yeah. But yes, it has sort of taken over. Um, I suppose you could say I really don't know what I've started, but I'm mm. trying to finish it. <laughs> I, I I know I'm, I can't remember who it was. Um, I, I read a while ago. Um, it was another author who. Um, oh, Stephen King. 
and he has a series, I can't recall the name of the, the series of books, but he has a series of books, and they're all kind of like an alternate reality, um, and they kind of switch back and forth. Um, and I remember reading um, him saying that that became all-consuming. Yes. Uh, initially, the first book was meant to be a book, uh-huh. and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't going to be any follow-on. But then after he had kind of finished book one, Somebody, I don't know if it was maybe the publisher or whoever, but I'd said to him, but what happened to X? Uh-huh. Because well, that, was that, you know, is exactly what happened. Yeah. Because that's what happened to me, because when the publisher accepted the book, the editor then said, and then what? <laughs> and I hadn't actually thought of that. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, um, it's, it's in a way, I'm telling a story about people who gets, in a way, get sucked into something, yeah. almost without realising that they're getting sucked in. And God damn it, the same thing happened to me. Mm. I got sucked in, and I got sucked in that far that I don't know if I'll ever emerge. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can honestly say from a reader's point of view, from this reader's point of view, I'm starting to feel a bit like that as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Because, as I said, I'm almost at the end of book three, and in all honesty, not that I'm rushing it, I'm, I'm still taking my time so that I can follow what's going on, but I can't wait for book three to finish so I can start on book four. Right, well, that's good to know. And I'm already kind of thinking in my own mind, you know, I wonder if this is going to happen, or will this person still be in book four? Uh-huh. You know, because a couple of things happen in book three that, didn't kind of take me by surprise, but uh, I didn't think what happened was going to happen. Right. Um, Excellent. I, I, I don't want to kind of mention them because I don't want to spoil it for anybody that, you know, hasn't read it and will go on to read it after they maybe listen to us. Um, so no spoiler alerts, I'm afraid. Right. <laughs> but that brings me on to another interesting question. Um, when a character is going to be written out of the book, for whatever reason, does that just develop naturally as part of the story? Or is there an in, an indication in your mind at some point, you know, that this person can't really go much further? Well, that depends. That depends um, on either they are historically correct mm. and that possibly their life ended right. and it's recorded. Uh, so you need to go with that. Mm. Um, if they're not recorded and they're in my imagination. Mm-hmm. I try to weave them into um, how it would have been appropriate for this to happen when it did. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Um, it, it just really because obviously I kind of expected with historical characters because you've got a definite start, a middle and an end for them. Um, you can't really go past, you know, when somebody dies and carry on for another 10 years with this person, um, because that's just not historically correct. But I was thinking more in terms of characters that, you you know, you're weaving into the story. Um, mm-hmm. who are, if you like, characterizations of other people who would have been alive at that time. You know, and if you had an idea in your own head, you know, this person is going to be in this for X amount of time, and then, you know, they'll move on or they'll get killed or whatever the case may be. Well, that's quite, quite, that's a quite an interesting way of putting it, because without saying which character, but one character um, who is in actual fact um, imaginary but based on, mm-hmm. um, I decided that this character um, would need to go. Mm-hmm. But the character didn't want to go <laughs> and fought me tooth and nail. And um, it really ended up that I had to make a final decision that no, you'll do as you are told, I'm dealing with you. And uh, the character did disappear, but after I'd done it, I felt very apologetic for having done it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that that whole idea of, you know, sort of that internal argument. Oh, yes. Between yourself and whoever the character Mm. is, you know. It's almost as if uh, once you've got, with a real character or a real historical character, you're trying to tie in with what you've learned about the person and then put in your interpretation of it. Where you have imagined the person, 
they somehow take on a life of their own. It's weird. Yeah. And in actual fact, some of them um, become much stronger affiliated to you than the historical characters. Mm. And, and they can be, how would I put it, quite troublesome. <laughs> <laughs> But that again, that kind of that kind of shows that there is a life there, albeit written down on a piece of paper. But there is a life to that character. You know the way that you've brought that character into the story and taken them out of the story. They have had you know that life within the span that they're there, which I think is fantastic. Good. Well, so, that's very encouraging. T- towards the end of book two, what when I was reading it although I knew that I had book three to come, I did kind of think to myself at one point that this actually could be quite a nice ending to to the story. And then I read a, another couple of pages on, and then I thought to myself, actually, do you know what? It is much better that there is a third book because what I had thought was coming to a nice natural end point turned out not to be coming to a nice natural end point. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> and as I said, that, so that kind of made me keen to get to get to book three. And as I say, I'm not quite finished book three yet, but I'm so keen um, to to get started on book four because right. I just know that it's. And and in fact, I'm even already thinking about book five. And I, I know you're just writing book six, but I'm even in the back of my mind. I'm starting to think. I wonder what's going to happen in book six. You know, I've not even read book four yet. <laughs> Well, strangely enough, with the ending of it, um, I would say about six months ago, I actually wrote the last part of book six. Mm. And I did that deliberately because I wanted to use it as my peak and I'll come up to it. Now, it'll be interesting to see when I get there if I accept it. Whether or not that's going to be the case. <laughs> no, I, do you know what? I, I'm I'm really keen to, to, to find out, you know, how, how that's going to develop. Um, and as I said, I, I'm, I reckon I'll probably finish book three today at some point and probably start on book four tomorrow. Once again, thank you very much for taking the time out to, to speak to me. <laughs> I, I'm, del- I'm delighted that, uh, that A, you showed an interest and since you've shown an interest, um, it sounds as if it's become a genuine interest. And yeah. that's really nice. That's really nice to know, James. Well, I'm glad to, to be reading through them. And once again, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. 